Hello, my name is Andrew Pollard. Welcome to our podcast series, The Oxford Colloquy, bringing the facts, stories and people behind the science. Dame Kate Bingham, ex-head of the UK government's vaccine task force, biochemist, venture capitalist, company director and author. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. Delighted to join you, Andy. Kate, uh, back um, in early 2020, uh, Sir Patrick Valance assembled a group of academics and industry experts to help advise him on the possible rollout of vaccines in controlling the pandemic. That was the forerunner uh, to uh, the Vaccine Task Force, which uh, you then led from, I think, April of 2020. Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, but uh, I think what would be interesting to start with is to understand a little bit about you and what is a venture capitalist? Oh, well, venture capitalist, basically, in, in my world, in, in biotech venture capital, is uh, the act of taking uh, breaking science that informs disease processes and tells you about what are the biological processes that are causing disease and driving disease in different patients. And it's about understanding how to harness those new insights into developing new drugs. And we do so, obviously, by working with brilliant academics and clinicians like you. Um, but fundamentally, we are investors. So my job is to basically juggle uh, uncertain uh, science um, uh, with, a, with a clear idea about what it is we're trying to do in terms of developing a new drug for a, a different disease but then figuring out how we can actually invest such that we can generate a financial return for our investors. So I raise money from long-term and large asset managers like pension funds and insurance companies and uh, big asset managers. And we then use those funds to invest in these new companies that are developing new drugs. And lots of things will fail, but when they succeed, we can then make a big financial return uh, and it's good both for our investors, but also it's good for patients because we, uh, if we're successful, we will be ultimately getting uh, new drugs to patients to treat uh, diseases that are not well treated. So is, is that role then more about um, understanding the science and using your background as a biochemist? Or is it about um, uh, more on the financial side of it and working out how to get the money from the pension funds to then invest? Um, I would not be relying on my own biochemistry skills uh, to make the, the fine uh, scientific judgments. But so I bring in experts uh, and teams to help really interrogate the science to make sure it's valid and robust. Um, and then we have drug discovery experts who then help with how do you actually turn uh, that insight into a drug? Because it may be a small molecule, a you know, little white pill. It may be an antibody based therapeutic. It may be gene therapy, cell therapy. Or even something more exotic than that. So, the the key is bringing those people that really do have the skills together, but to do to do so in a time frame that makes sense for our funds. So our funds are typically ten year funds. So we would spend the first five years or so investing the money in uh, our different portfolio of companies, and then for the second five years, start thinking about how do have have we been able to generate the value that we expect. And how can we actually realise that so that we can start to uh, get money back to investors? And that typically is driven off um, efficacy data in patients. Um, and we would either take our companies public on a, on a public stock exchange 
and sell our private equity, basically swap it into public equity, um, and then you can sell it that way. Or we would sell to a pharmaceutical company, um, much like we saw in the pandemic, where the big pharma comes in to actually do that late stage, pivotal clinical trials, manufacturing, distribution, regulatory work to actually get those drugs ultimately to patients. But either way, uh, it is a lot of risky decisions um, and uh, we have to build portfolios because lots of what we do will fail. That, that's fantastic. And of course, that very much sets us up for this discussion, which is um, looking at your role in the pandemic. And um, I, I guess um, in some ways, um, what you've just described is very much the role that you need um, in government to try and make decisions about vaccines. But before we go into that, did, did, had you previously worked in vaccines? Had you already assembled teams around vaccine investments? Or is that, was that something completely new for you? I have never invested in any prophylactic vaccines ever. So that's why I was incredibly uh, shocked to even, well, first of all, I was shocked when Patrick even invited me to join that expert group because he knew I was not an expert in, in prophylactic vaccines. And when I challenged him, he, the, his response was basically that, that, I, that I had spent my career and, and had a good insight into what the smaller innovative companies was do, were doing. So that is true, and I am networked. So that that aspect was correct, um, uh, but but actually, vaccines are different from therapeutics because what I'm used to doing is to take patients who are uh, sick with a disease that isn't well treated and think about how can we actually develop drugs that will slow or stop the, the progression of their disease. Whereas with vaccines, obviously, as you know, you're dealing with healthy people that you're putting something into them in order to prevent getting a disease. So the safety standards are, have to be absolutely squeaky clean in, in, in prophylactic vaccines in a way that you can, depending on what disease we're dealing with, uh, have a little bit more flexibility if it's you know late stage cancer patient and there is no alternative. So I, as, as I recall, it was the Secretary of State for Health who invited you to take on the, the role as lead for the vaccine task with the chair of the vaccine task. Is, is that correct? Um, he was the one who sent a text, uh, and I spoke to him, yes. Um, and again, when I challenged him as to on what authority was he inviting me, the, the answer was that he'd just come in, come from a meeting with the PM. So the invitation clearly was, he was the messenger from the Prime Minister and to establish whether or not it was a flyer. And then when I went back the following day with my conditions, then I, get, then I got a call from the PM. But uh, I wouldn't have done it without setting some pretty clear conditions first. So, so when you when you got that call, did you think, "Oh, this is what I've always wanted to do"? My my whole career has been building up to this moment. I thought the very reverse. Uh, I absolutely thought, "Why on earth is he asking me?" Because he knows I don't know vaccines, and I've got a job, and there must be lots of better people to do this than me. And I was coming up with every uh, excuse under the sun as to why uh, I should not do it. Um, and then eventually, he said to me. Look, Kate, none of us have ever done this before. We are asking you to step up. And actually, that is quite a strong argument. So that's when I said, OK, let me think about it. And that's when the following day I came back with, with my conditions. So it didn't take very long to, to think this is actually something that, that you could do. What, what was the brief that uh, you were given um, for the vaccine task force? A brief was very straightforward. Um, three key goals. One was to secure vaccines for the UK. Second, as, as quickly as possible. The second was to secure vaccines uh, and ensure equitable access to vaccines for the rest of the world. Um, and the third was to um, 
put in place plans to make sure we were better set up for next time. All of that had an override of speed. And uh, Boris at the time was very keen that the UK should be seen to be at the forefront of vaccine R&D. So that was that was the brief. And then, of course, it had a bit of colour in it about, you know, that the, the vaccine should all have a British flag on them and things like that. But actually, fundamentally, the the goals were incredibly clear. And and what was it for you that uh, that really made this chime with with your sort of mission in life? But was it around the, uh, the the public health side of it, or was it just the feeling that the skill set that you have was absolutely right for this brief? Well, I think even when I accepted it, I wasn't at all convinced about the skill set, um, which is why one of my conditions was that I was able to recruit my own team because I. Uh, even if I didn't know anything about vaccines, I certainly knew people that did and knew that I'd be able to pull a team together that could bring the, the, the skills in together. Um, I mean, I've, I certainly was not thinking this was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life or had ever thought about it. But actually, at a time where, you know, we are in a severe crisis as a country, everybody is thinking about what is it that they can usefully do. And if what I can do is pull together a team uh, and uh, work in such a way that we can try and deliver what were very, very ambitious goals, uh, then then that seemed to be something to be reasonable. And what I was anxious about was to make sure we didn't fall into the normal issue of working with government, which is uh, takes too long and you've got too many roadblocks in the way. So the, the things that um, I asked the prime minister was to uh, that I, I would uh, report to him that it was a uh, the, the the government would make quick decisions about uh, buying vaccines, deploying money, investing in money, and so on. Um, that we have a ring fence budget, so we weren't constantly arguing about whose pot was it going to come out of. Um, I wanted uh, this. I just raised a new fund for uh, um, SV Health investors, so uh, I agreed to do six months because I really did not think I could take out more time than that. And even so, I had to get permission. Um, and, those, and, and those were actually all pretty important things that made a, a big difference. And when I spoke to the PM, I said, you're going to have to put cash up front before you know which, if any of these vaccines will work. And uh, he agreed. And that was, I think, one of the unusual things um, about how the UK and actually the US worked, which was quite different from other countries who are much more hesitant about putting cash up front um, which could all have been lost. Well, I think we we definitely will come back to to that topic in a moment. Um, you you talked about your um, your work as a venture capitalist and assembling the team around you, and it seems to me that's been fundamental here in being able to perform so well in in the the vaccine task force was um, understanding that you need to bring the skills around you for that. So how how did you work out what you needed? Because as you said, this is quite a different area. The uh, the products are much more difficult to make than for most drugs, um, and there's 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 lots of other areas where uh, there's a skill set that that I I would have imagined you wouldn't have had the uh, the relevant people at your fingertips. Well, the the team by and large was was half and half half industrial uh, domain matter experts and half equivalent domain matter experts, but from the civil servants civil service. So. Uh, I would say the vast majority had some form of STEM science background, 
Um, my director general, Nick Elliott, uh, originally an engineer, started off in bomb disposal, uh, com you know, long and successful career in the army, moved into commercial complex projects. And he had been then seconded back out of the private sector to come and help with PPE uh, uh, procurement um, to, and try and sort that out. And once he'd he'd had brought that under control, he was then told, "Now you're um, you're coming to vaccines." So Nick basically brought in uh, the the capability for the commercial and legal, the program management, so how to make sure all the things we were doing were actually going to get delivered on time, and the diplomacy. Because despite the political rhetoric, we were talking widely to other countries all the time, sharing what we were doing, seeing how we could help. Because we were not competing against other countries, we were competing against uh, the virus. So Nick basically handled that, and then I brought in the uh, science and um, sort of technical evaluation of um, of the different vaccines, which was Clive Dix. And then Clive basically then brought in his own SWAT team to look at each independent aspect of the different potential vaccine candidates. Uh, we had clinical uh, Divya who who basically helped ensure that the clinical trials were scoped and delivered. Um, Ian on the manufacturing side and scale up, which was the single hardest uh, aspect of everything we did, which was taking uh, these, you know, the advanced bio, biological processing um, uh, methods, which and having to scale them up just vastly, vastly quicker than would not be normal. And that was the challenge. Um, and then, and then we had Steve, who basically helped us with all the sort of the, the broader industry contacts. So uh, I think we it was pretty clear as to what were the skills we needed. We had to make them, we had to test them, we had to make sure they were safe, we had to make sure that we had the right um, uh, infrastructure to to support those country companies and make sure that we were we contracted properly. So, and that I would say that team came together within. I mean, Clive. Clive signed up on I think the day day after I was appointed, and I think the team came, came together within a few weeks. I mean, it was very quick. And and I guess um, that group that you described, which covers those different aspects of vaccine development and manufacturing, um, and the legal side and purchasing and so on, is something which doesn't normally sit within governments. Uh, and you, you you spoke about uh, the importance of having science as a background amongst those individuals. Um, so. If, if you look at that skill set, does that normally exist uh, within government departments? Can, could, could this have happened internally, I guess, is the question. Well, it couldn't have happened in 2020 because we didn't. I mean, the reason that's the reason the VTF was set up. Um, there is no reason why it can't happen. That's what I find frustrating because um, having those current industry contacts um, is something that, yes, we've got and we had within the team. But that is something that the government could recruit. I mean, it's, there are plenty of people that will be willing to work part time or even full time uh, to support governments to make that interface between private sector and government more efficient and to help lubricate. So I think that is something that should be there that is missing. Um, and I think the focus on uh, near term outcomes is something that's not really uh, as as emphasised as I think it should be um, in, in government. So that there seems to be a much greater focus on process rather than outcome. And in the private sector, all we care about is, I mean, of course, we have to do things legally and 
auditable and all of that and professionally. But what we really mind about is do we actually get the outcome we're looking for um, in an ethical and, and you know, high integrity way? And, and if there are things we can do to get to that, that answer quicker, then we will do them. And that's not something that is naturally how the civil service thinks. No, you, you could argue that this is a good way to make decisions um, in a pandemic where you can be very focused with a task force on a single area. But that's much more difficult when instead of focusing on COVID-19 vaccines, we're trying to deal in the health system with diabetes and cancer and all the infectious diseases and, and uh, frailty on all those other aspects uh, of health that all need equal priorities. So could this work in peacetime? I definitely think it could. So on Monday, um, the uh, dementia, the life science uh, mission um, focused on dementia was announced with with the two chairs, um, and that has a that and the, and new, the other dementia mission, the other missions, life science missions will get announced in due course. Each of them is modelled on the VTF, which is to bring somebody in from the outside and set them up with some very clear goals. Not necessarily lots of money, because money actually was not the driving force with us. It was about goals, authority, and a focus uh, to deliver. Very, very compelling um, that, that we should have more task force. Let, let me draw you back, though, to the pandemic, and uh, if I may. Um, and particularly now to think about um, the decision that there was to, uh, to make deals with a certain number of developers. Now, I, we, today, there are around 350 vaccines that have been in development. Um, and you went with a, I, I know what the final number or the initial number was, around 10, um, and then ended up with a much smaller um, group at the end. So what was the decision making that brought you down to that small group um, out of the many possibilities that, and p- possibly lots of um, rabbit holes that would have taken you nowhere um, that uh, you could have gone down? I think there were about 190 different vaccines that were uh, in some level of discovery or development in sort of May, June 2020. So, and we had to produce a business case for the Treasury to say, you know, what were we going to do and how much money did we want? And of course, we had no idea at that point because we hadn't done any of the work. So we said at that point, we thought it would be 10 to 12 different vaccines um, across a range of different vaccine formats. So that was what we thought before we did the work. We then uh, dug in quite hard into the different uh, potential opportunities and pretty much categorized uh, the, uh, the, the formats into four broad formats. So the adeno, mRNA, protein peptide and whole virus. Um, the, and then we basically looked at which were the most, um, the most promising in each of those different categories. So we knew we wanted a portfolio because we just didn't know which, if any of them would work. mRNA and adeno, of course, had never been approved for anything. So even though there'd been clinical data, we didn't have any regulatory approvals and the protein peptide and the whole virus were going to be much slower. So we understood there was going to be a time difference between it. So then um, the decision making process was basically to look at what data was there, what any clinical data was there. And mostly there wasn't a lot. So then the question was, was there any clinical data in, uh, for, the, for that format in other diseases? That would give us any idea of safety and immunogenicity and potential protection. Um, so that, there was a whole lot of work looking at the sort of the science and the clinical data uh, for both the COVID vaccine as well as 
related. Um, then a key part of the diligence was about uh, was it reasonable to expect that population scale uh, doses could be delivered within a reasonable time frame? Uh, and that was a a big uh, uh, barrier for most most vaccines. Um, and 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 a barrier because uh, there was um, no route to, to large scale manufacturing because there was there was no one doing it already, or because you thought technically it would be difficult. Uh, well, technically we knew it all, was all difficult. Um, it was more whether or not they'd actually got any sort of plan in place to show how they were going to be able to get to multi-million dollar vote, multi-million dose uh, volumes. So in the case of the clinical uh, uh, development, we had a cutoff to say any vaccine we considered had to have been, had to be entering or planned to be entering the clinical, clinical trials in 2020. Because if it hadn't even gone into the clinic by 2020, we just said that's going to be too late for the immediate response. For manufacturing, we had to be convinced that they could get to you know tens of millions of dose scale up levels, which meant we had to see both the plans of what they were planning, what, what they were expecting to do. We had to see the evidence of what they had done, and um, we had to be convinced that the the vaccines, if they were not being manufactured in the UK, would get delivered to the UK. So that was one of the key decisions we had to make between uh, Moderna and Pfizer. Um, was or obviously we we went with both, but we were a lot more convinced that we would have the Pfizer vaccine delivered to the UK because they had a European supply chain uh, than Moderna that was putting in place a European supply chain, but that was several months behind their US supply chain, and we did not uh, believe that we would get uh, supplied out of the US, which proved to be correct. So as we then go through um, 2020 and you see the trial data uh, moving along and, and, of course, the enormous media scrutiny of, of everything that both you were doing and, and happening um, in the clinical trials, when, when was the moment when you sort of uh, felt actually that this is, this is going to work? And I, I don't mean the vaccine efficacy, but, but actually this process with the vaccine task force. Or were you always confident that you were going to get there? Uh, no, I was not always confident we would get there. Um... Uh, I was pretty confident in in the work that the vaccine task force was doing though, because we had some great people and they were doing all the right sort of work. They were talking to all the uh, the right vaccines and government was working in terms of making decisions very smoothly. So I I didn't spend a lot of time reflecting on on whether or not the VTF process uh, was going to plan. Uh, I was much more focused on how were the actual individual vaccines. Uh, looking and what was the clinical data coming through? What was the manufacturing data coming through? What were the regulators saying? Did it feel like we were on the right sort of path? Um, and so, I mean, the first date was your date, which was in July. Um, and you'll, I'm sure it'll be embedded on your uh, memory when you, when you announced the first immunogenicity data, uh, which showed that the Adeno vaccine could generate a immune response. And of course, at that point, we didn't know whether or not that would be a protective immune response. But that was a massive, massive leap, step forward that, that we'd at least seen that data. And so far, the safety looked great. And, and that was incredibly promising. And then thereafter, really, it was not until the first visit data, because that was when we knew that, that, that the level of protection, at least as measured by antibodies, was much higher than we had expected. 
So the FDA, which is the, the US regulator, had put a line in the sand saying they wanted to see at least 50% efficacy. And the MHRA, the regulator in the UK, had not put such a formal uh, guideline. And they said they would look at each, each vaccine on a case-by-case basis. And I certainly remember we were having discussions um, within the VTF as to whether or not you know, the MHRA might accept efficacy of 30% if the vaccine was shown to be safe, because our view was 30% was better than nothing, which is all we had at the moment. And every day that went by, there were more newspaper reports about how many people had died. So we, we were very, very focused on time. Um, and so it was that early November date when we saw the Pfizer-BioNTech efficacy, which was incredibly exciting, and then followed by you guys. Um, and then it was quite clear, but after that early Pfizer efficacy, was that was so profound that it was highly likely that the other vaccines would work at some level. We didn't know at what level they would be. We didn't know what the ultimate safety would be. But early November is when it felt like it was all going to play out. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and of course, you rightly bring up this issue of timing, um, because the way to have, a, have an impact, obviously, in, in, the, in a pandemic is to be able to vaccinate before people have succumbed to the virus. And so timing and coverage is critical. And so I think absolutely right to, um, to focus um, on those issues. Um, I, I guess today you have now a lot of knowledge about vaccines. And so I, I have, have a question for you there about whether um, now that you know what you do know, would you have done something differently with the vaccine task force with, with such a, a breadth and intense period of, of understanding of vaccines? Well, I, I'm not, um, I do not have an intense understanding about vaccines, but um, uh, what I would, well, so on the actual procurement, no. I think what we did with procurement and supporting the vaccine companies to do the trials and scale up, you know, yes, we might have had a different group of people that might have done things slightly differently, but fundamentally, I think we did everything we possibly could have done with that. Um, if I had my time again, I would be pushing harder uh, for for continued engagement with the vaccine companies to think about the next generation vaccines, um, both for dealing with variants as well as dealing with whatever new pandemic may come along, because we have completely dropped the ball on that. And it's not that we didn't put some plans in place and say this is what you should be doing, but uh, fundamentally, we didn't follow through to really make sure that was happening. And if you think about our vaccines, They've been superb at protecting against severe disease and death, but pretty hopeless in lots of other ways. So they're not really giving a lot of protection against infection or transmission. The durability of these vaccines, especially the mRNA vaccines, is short. Um, We don't have yet a really broad sort of pan-coronavirus vaccine. And fundamentally, we need to have multivalent vaccines so you can deal with with either you know multiple coronavirus strains or or variants, but also you know RSV flu and start having a single shot which which uh, will protect you more broadly. Because again, looking at uh, beds in the winter in the NHS, a lot of that is related to respiratory viruses, whether it's you know pneumonia and and other for, other severe um, respiratory infections. And then thinking so that's all about the sort of efficacy, which I think could be vastly improved. Um, affordability, I think, is a, still a big issue. mRNA vaccines are expensive. The culture 
with a minus 70 degree and the stability requirements are, uh, I think, very challenging, especially in low and middle income countries. Um, and we don't yet have really well um, supported, flexible manufacturing capability around the world. So India clearly dominated uh, the provision of vaccines for low and middle income countries. But we've got to be in a place where some of these countries and Africa in particular has more of its capability uh, itself. And we've got to get away from needles because as soon as you've got you have a, a requirement that everything is given by needle that puts it into a healthcare setting rather than, you know, getting a spray or a patch or a pill through the post where you can actually deliver the vaccines much more easily. So if I had my time again, I would be pushing much harder to say, how can we actually address some of these shortcomings of what was, you know, these are amazing vaccines. And the fact that they are still as effective as they are on Omicron, Mark, whatever we're on now, uh, is astonishing. But that doesn't mean we should sit back. We, sh we really need to keep pushing forward. And that's what I should have done. I, I mean, I think uh, you're perhaps a bit hard on yourself because the, from a scientific perspective, the challenges you put out there are extremely difficult ones. Um, we, we actually don't know how to make vaccines that will completely block infection of a variant that we don't know about yet because it's we're always making vaccines for the last variant and we, we could probably stop infections with the last one, but not with the next one. And so it's really a big scientific challenge. I, I, I think your point about durability is an important one. Of course, that is about protection against infection, but durability protection against the pandemic levels of death is very good. And we yes, are I seeing agree. that. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, an important point just uh, to pick up on, but durability against infection is, is poor. Um, I, I think it'd be interesting just to come back to the point you made earlier about uh, the difference with other countries. And, and I think um, uh, certainly from where I sit, it feels as if uh, your work uh, with, uh, across government, with the regulators, it was very joined up and uh, led to us being in a very strong position in having the first approved vaccines in the world and the very rapid rollout. And that, that is a bit different uh, from the experiences in other countries. And you, you said, I think, which I think is very heartening, that you were talking um, to opposite numbers um, in governments elsewhere. So what, what do you think the differences were um, there? Um, was it just that they didn't have vaccine development in, in, in their onshore? Or was it um, that there was a fundamental difference in the way they were thinking? So the US, I spoke to um, Monsef every other week and had then... He was the head of Operation Warp Speed. Yeah, in the US. And then people in my team would then speak to their opposite numbers in uh, Warp Speed. So I'd say that um, discussions with the US were very strong. Um, and uh, Monsef taught me an awful lot about vaccines since he knows a lot about this. Um, and we basically just shared notes as to where what progress would be made and anything useful we thought the other person should know about. And to the extent we could help each other, we did. So I'd say we were pretty aligned in what, what they were doing. Um, on on the Europe, we spoke to a bunch of the different European countries. There, I think it was more constrained because they were much slower in actually getting ahead of saying, OK, right, we need to have a uh, procurement capability. And when I joined, actually, originally, I was given a letter from the French and the Germans saying, uh, did we want to join up in a threesome with each country? having strong you know, capability themselves and leading contenders for vaccines. And actually, that might well have been something that was quite sensible. Um, but 
to do as well as what we were doing. But I, but I think having that depth of expertise and and uh, you know buying power uh, could have been quite helpful. But um, the European the perception from um, outside was really the decision to be making will be being made at the European Commission level rather than at the individual country level in Europe. Is is that right, or or, or were the countries? Yeah. So that's what the European. So the European Commission came back and said, rapped them on the knuckles and said, no, 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 you've got to do everything through us. And it took them a while to actually get that organised. And then they did not do what we did, which was to, to bring in somebody basically from industry to then bring an industry team to then talk the same language to the different uh, uh, companies. So they did take a different approach, and it was just a slightly slower approach. Now, to be fair, if you're dealing with 27 countries, it is always going to be slower than dealing with one country. So that, um, I think, was different. And I think other countries uh, were just too small to, to be able to get the attention. And they didn't have, you know, national clinical trial capability. I mean, clearly, you know, countries like South Africa and Brazil did a lot of work on the clinical trials, but they didn't have the government infrastructure to be able to procure and... Um, to then deliver in the in the same way, so we were vastly helped by having uh, an NHS, which basically you know the population trusted. And one of the key risks was you know if we got the COVID vaccination, either got chose the wrong vaccines that caused severe harm, or we got the rollout wrong. You know what impact would that have then on pediatric vaccination? And that was something that was a real concern. Um, so I think a lot of countries too small couldn't didn't have the national. Uh, trial capability didn't have the the industry to actually support with manufacturing um meant that we were were in a stronger position than we in fact had thought when we started but if you think about it the uk is a teeny country um as a as a buyer you know the uk doesn't pay any money for it you know happy to pay a penny a bucket for its drugs but so we're not known as a as a, a high paying country and the jcbi's advice in 2020 was that we were just, uh, they were just re recommending to vaccinate the vulnerable, which was about 30 million people in the UK. So relatively, that was quite a small number of people and number of vaccines that we were buying. So it was definitely a concern to us as to how we could be, be credible to the vaccine companies. Um, you, you mentioned um, uh, the vaccine companies, and, and obviously there are, there are a number of vaccine companies uh, that um, produce vaccines for uh, routine immunization across Europe and, and in the US. Um, but actually, in the end, uh, there have not been very many big pharma companies that make vaccines that have made pandemic vaccines that, that were produced in a timely fashion. I, I wonder, if, as, as someone who's an industry insider, what your reflections on the reasons for that are? And we, we should say the exception being Pfizer, which has produced vast numbers of doses um, globally. And what, what, what's your reflections on where, why industry has been more prominent? So, um, yeah, so Pfizer, I mean, the, the vaccine that they, uh, that we call the Pfizer vaccine is in fact the BioNTech vaccine. So this is the, what was a small German-based company uh, with whom Pfizer had been collaborating. So that was a, is a, was a relationship that predated the pandemic. But again, the innovation came from the small company and that was true across most of the vaccines. So it either came from academia like with you guys or came out of the small company. J&J, &J, uh, their Ad26 had again been acquired by, through a small company. So 
innovation has historically come through the little companies. So when, when you say you guys, you mean the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine? Oxford, so just, just to I be clear, mean yes. Well, I mean the, in, the innovation and the invention and the design came from Oxford, and AZ then came to help scale and, and distribute. So um, it, it is worrying. And I think, um, I mean, GSK really tried. So they had took a different approach. So rather than saying they were going to develop their own vaccine, they uh, made their available to a wide range of different peptide and protein-based vaccines. Um, and that was a strategy that actually turned out not to have been that successful because um, none of those vaccines got approved any time in the, in, in the first two years, actually. So it was a different strategy. And I think in part with them, they'd had such a challenge with swine flu that there was probably a reluctance to really go all in with developing you know, their own vaccine. So they initially... You're referring to some safety concerns which arose around one of the vaccines they, they developed during the H1N1 pandemic of 2009. Yes, with, and, and where GSK produced vaccine. So they did two things. They, they joint ventured with Sanofi. So it was literally vaccine companies number one and two in the world working together. So that was an interesting partnership because that wouldn't have happened normally. Um, and yet the, then there were some uh, quality issues in the Sanofi uh, development of the, of the protein that meant that that vaccine uh, was, was way, way off the pace in terms of getting approved. So it, I can't really explain why the big companies... Uh, I guess Merck is the other big company that yeah. one might have expected to be in this space. Well, they had two vaccine candidates and we were talking to them about both those two. Um, uh, both uh, viral-based uh, candidates, and both both failed. So what was interesting was, um, you know, GSK Sanofi too slow, uh, uh, Merck failed, Pfizer was was fortunate that they'd already partnered with a leading contender. Um, Janssen never really got out of the blocks. So J and J. So again, hugely uh, well-respected, big player in global health. Um, but in the case of and and a very effective good vaccine, which I would imagine you would agree with. Um, but they never were able to scale up and really get their vaccine um, out um, uh, at the at the volumes that were really going to make a difference. Um, and again, that will have been a commercial decision about where and how they were going to invest um, to do so. Because I think the vaccine was great; they just just didn't have the volume. So it is very striking. That uh, that pharma played such a minimal role in the in the innovation. They did obviously help each other in terms of manufacturing for each other and sharing the capability. So even though it may not have been their vaccine that they were they were manufacturing, they were using their uh, manufacturing capacity to support others, and that I think worked well. Yeah, I say so. Um, no, perhaps um, in terms of lessons learned, one is to understand really what went wrong better. Uh, because clearly that's where the huge capabilities are with, is in with, with Big Pharma um, that should allow us to get there much more quickly for future pandemics. Yes, although I think if, um, I mean, the small companies sh showed that they were able to run the clinical trials themselves. And actually, again, in the UK, uh, we had a urgent public health badging of clinical trials. So anything to do with COVID jumped up to the top of the list. And we were able to run clinical trials here at speeds that have simply not been seen or done before. So we know we can do it. 
And that didn't require Big Pharma. I mean, it can be done with Big Pharma, but it didn't require Big Pharma. Where I think Big Pharma does play a role is to really support the, the bulk manufacturing of these highly complex uh, new, new products. Um, but partly that is to do with where the capability is. So we do have a bunch of good CDMOs. So that's contract development manufacturing organizations um, who were highly experienced in these different um, areas, but didn't have the scale to do the big sort of population scale manufacturing. So what are basically buy bigger um, bioreactors, but there's no reason again why more of that couldn't be in place uh, ongoing as an industry. And from a sort of UK perspective, advanced manufacturing is a high growth, you know, high value add um, activity. So it is something that we should be leaning into. If I was, you know, sitting in government devising um, industrial strategy, that is something I would be pushing quite hard. So if if we really had that um, uh, contract cap capability, then maybe you don't need big pharma so much. But I vastly think it's better to have their capability on, you know, regulatory scale up manufacturing quality distribution, because this is a this is not an area for amateurs, and we really need that that depth of expertise. Now, the the US, um, at least the press release says at the time suggested that they were offering a billion dollars to each of the vaccine developers to produce a vaccine to go through the clinical trials in twenty twenty. That that offer didn't come from the vaccine task force in the UK. And I, I think you've you've already mentioned that perhaps the focus wasn't so much on money. Do you think that that is an issue? Would that you know was that putting us at more risk than than there was in the US because of the the availability of funds? Uh, no. Um, so yes, the US. I think it, they put up their billion dollars to each of the companies, um, but we put up cash up front. It was just um, ours was basically pre-purchase of vaccines, recognizing that those vaccines may not ever <laughs> materialize but that we were putting up uh, cash. So, I mean, relatively speaking, if you look at the you know, population US versus UK, I think we put up our equivalent of at least that. So I don't think we were, put, I don't think we were at a disadvantage in that at all. So you, you found yourself very much um, in the media spotlight um, during uh, the pandemic in your very prominent role. How did you find that experience? Is, is that um, something which was just uh, part of the day job. I imagine that doesn't happen normally in, in the, the work that you do to have that intensity of interest. Um, or was, was that um, something which was very difficult to manage and stressful? So the, um, the very, there wasn't a lot of media for the, about the first five months, which was quite helpful. So that the media we did um, initially over the summer was basically to tell everybody uh, what were the vaccines that we'd signed term sheets for to let the population know that we'd set up a registry so that people could uh, uh, register their interest in taking part in trials um, and uh, to, to, you know, some updated progress where we've got to. The, the sort of hostile media interest really started at the beginning of November, which was, you know, six, eight weeks before I was due to finish. Uh, and so had that happened earlier, it may well have derailed uh, what we were doing, but it didn't. So we were able to actually get on with the core activity relatively under the radar. I mean, needless to say, the government was asking for, you know, attendances at the briefings of, you know, the, the Downing Street briefings and stuff, which we didn't do because we had nothing to say. And so the idea was, you know, 
when we're ready to actually tell people what it is we're doing and how we how they can help and get involved in clinical trials, then we'll talk. But before that, we won't. So then when the sort of hostile media started in November, uh, it was really tough because I was being accused of being corrupt, a crony and incompetent, all of which are not exactly pleasant um, descriptions. Uh, and uh, I've never had that experience of sort of personal hostility from people who <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, and then when it became clear that it was coming from within government, that was what was was made it feel worse. Um, and it was really, you know, friends and people in the know that were basically saying, actually, it's not really about you. It's about what you represent rather than you personally. Just take your ego out of it. Keep, you know, keep your head down. Um, eye on the prize and um, keep going. And actually, that was incredibly useful advice. And it's easy for me to uh, look back now and say, you know, that was good advice. I followed the advice and it was all great. But it didn't mean that it wasn't pretty miserable at the time because it was. Yes, I, I, I mean, I think everyone uh, who knew you through that and you just could see what awful pressure uh, you were being put under. Um, I, I think um, it, perhaps um, reflecting on that a little bit uh, is that vaccines in some countries have been very political, but actually, didn't, you know, your experience aside, it's not felt terribly political in the U- in, in, internally in the UK in the sense that um, the, there hasn't been a, a major um, opposition against the, the work of vaccine development and, and the procurement and the rollout of vaccines. Um, but of course, that isn't the case in some countries. Do, do you think that that is by design or is that just some cultural difference in the UK? Oh, I just think we're vastly uh, have an advantage because of the NHS. So the NHS uh, is trusted widely by the population in the UK. And I haven't seen whatever the polls will say, but if you um, if you compare it to trust in political parties versus the NHS, the NHS comes out, you know, wildly better. And I think having uh, physicians like um, Chris Whitty and JVT speaking up and explaining what the clinical issues are and, and how people should understand uh, both the impact of the, of the infection and the virus, but also how the vaccines might start working, I think was very reassuring. Um, chief medical officer and the deputy chief medical officer. Yes. So we had you know, very clear speaking physicians speaking to the population. I think that was great. So I think the worry is where you don't have that sense of trust or, or independence, uh, independent experts giving that advice. And there's no question that uh, vaccine hesitancy is related to levels of trust in the authorities of the people that are giving the vaccines. Um, and Heidi Larson has done great work on this in the Vaccine Confidence Project. And it's something that is a major, major concern. So to the extent that Gavi, which is the major international group that distributes uh, paediatric vaccines in low and middle income countries, is independent of the, the local governments uh, within different countries. I think they, you know, they do great work. Um, and I do think it's a, it's a big issue. But, you know, fundamentally, vaccines change the quality and improve the quality of people's lives around the world. And so whatever we do, we need to make sure that people don't lose trust and faith in vaccines because that's is is completely critical. Thank you, uh, Kate. And so you you reached um, uh, the end of uh, your term as uh, chair of the Vaccine Task Force. 
um, and then went straight back into uh, your normal life in vaccine venture capital? Not not vaccines, um, in just Sorry. in venture capital, yes. <laughs> Um, yes, so we set up a new company in ophthalmology, so dealing with back of the eye diseases, it's where you've got um, dysfunction in the uh, uh, the barrier, and and you start leading to blindness and diabetic macular edema and macular degeneration. So I've moved away from vaccines and back into uh, diseases that are really poorly treated. I, I think I think my slip there was because I was hoping you would go back into vaccines, but. Uh... <laughs> Um, so, uh, I, what what do you do in your spare time? How do you how do you fill up the the time when you're you're not focusing on on development of new drugs to improve health? Uh, well, in London, I uh, bicycle to work, and then and then I will do spin race. Um, and then at weekend, I get outside onto the mountains and walk, run, ride, do whatever, bike, whatever I can do to um, uh, play outside. The weather. So I'm, I uh, love, and while swimming in the summer. So I do lots of that and I have a vegetable garden. So I spend time growing my plants and, and I've got my new, uh, oh, this is video, so a non-video. I was going to say I've got my new schnapps that I make from uh, plums and apples, which then get distilled in Ludlow. It sounds like you, you have a, a full-time job outside of the main job, just in uh, servicing all of those interests. So if, if the, the Secretary of State asked you again tomorrow for the next pandemic, would you say yes and take on the role again? I think if it was an identical rerun, I would say no, because they should have uh, really put in place that sort of capability uh, because it's very clear what sort of skills they need to bring into government. If it's something that was unexpected, they couldn't have planned for them the same way, I might do, but I'm absolutely not putting my hand up. For it, it would have to be some massive emergency. I'm. I just think, if you get asked to do something, in a way, uh, where you really are the only person to do it, then I think it's it's churlish not to at least consider it. But if it's just you know Groundhog Day and we we have a complete rerun of what we've just done, then I would say no and think of somebody else that should do it. Don't worry, Kate, I'm not working secretly for government HR, so there's there's no job offer on the table at the moment. Yeah. Um, if you hadn't gone in from your biochemistry degree to go into venture capitalism, what, what would you have done instead? Have you, have you thought about what, what alternative life you might have pursued? Uh, yes, I would have just stayed, I think, working in the biotech sector. So I was a very early... Uh, 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 employee at, in, at Vertex Pharmaceuticals way before it uh, developed their CFTR um, cystic fibrosis drugs. So in the days where it was quite unusual sort of structure-based drug design. So looking at X-ray crystallography and trying to get angstrom level uh, structures of potential drug targets and then building uh, drugs um, for whichever diseases. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And I still work with the people that um, I worked with at Vertex in the in early 90s. Um, so I think that's probably what I would have done is, is just gone into operations and worked in, in biotech per se. Dame Kate Bingham, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Join us next time for more on the facts, stories and people behind the science.